Welcome to Becker and Broom on Bullets Forever, a podcast for the thinking Washington Wizards fan. My name is Ben Becker. My co-host is a legend in the Wizards blogosphere, Mr. Kevin Broom. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Ben. So we're recording this on a Tuesday night, January the 17th. The Wizards just beat Portland yesterday on MLK Day quite handily. They beat Philly before that. Don't look now, but they have won 5 out of 6, and actually 14 out of 20. Kevin, you and I have been operating under the assumption or the premise that the Wizards are fundamentally a mediocre team. They're not terrible. Mm -hmm. They're certainly not very good. Has anything over the last week or last weeks changed your view of the Wizards? Has the trajectory of, of the season been altered at all? I don't think so. I've, you know, looked at the various tools that I use and they still look perfectly on course for a 41 and 41 finish. Now would be a really good time for a sad sound effect, by the way, but go on. This was a really easy section of their schedule. The last 20 games, 12 of them have been at home. The teams they've faced have collectively been about a point per game worse than league average. So an average team going against the schedule, playing at home, should have won 12 to 13 of those games. And so that they've won 14, is it's really good, but it's pretty much right on course with where they should be, being an average team. And um, so nothing has really changed overall with them. I mean, they dropped a few games earlier in the year that they – probably should have won they probably won a game or two in this stretch that they probably quote-unquote should have lost you know they got some breaks with health from some other teams you know Milwaukee missing Greek Freak and Chicago missing three starters including Jimmy Butler and the Clippers missing Blake Griffin all of which helped gain get them three wins that they might not otherwise have had I guess Griffin did play in that game but it was the game right before he announced his surgery, so after the fact, it was pretty clear that he wasn't healthy. Yeah, and 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 I would tend to agree. I want to say that they that they've turned a corner just because they're playing better than when they started the season. And in the in the Wizards' Twitter verse, there's you see lots of tweets to this effect about they've won 13 in a row at home, they've won 14 mm-hmm. of 20. The owner is now tweeting uh, some stats about how they've improved, which is quite cute. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, uh, over the course of, uh, of these 20 games, the, the, their, of their six losses, three of them were bad. They lost yeah. to Dallas, they lost to Miami, they lost to Orlando. Good teams just don't lose those games. And their best wins were that Clipper win, w- which was against a, w- with a broken Blake Griffin. And, yeah. and I guess Charlotte... Who's who's a pretty good team, and you know that's a nice win. But it, but they lost to the Celtics, etc. It's not like they're going out and, and and beating the better teams in the league. Yeah, I would love to see them uh, beat Memphis, and and this will probably be released after the that game is played. So, but but even if and and I and I want to see them come and, and dominate Mem- Memphis for that matter. But I, I still, you know, I I agree with. With, with with what you're seeing that that the wizards are still a, a a fine team but 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 nothing more yeah and then just to give you an idea i mean 
when we talk about the schedule, they've played a lot of home games so far. From March 1 until the end of the season, 18 of their 24 games are going to be on the road. Think about that. They've got two West Coast trips in that time frame. After the All-Star break, they only have 10 more home games the rest of the way after the All-Star break. So historically, statistically, what's the difference between a a home and a road game? You you made some mention about sort of what their expected record uh, was over this 20-game stretch. The fact that they played a lot at home, does that tilt the the, the, the scales in their favor? Yeah. The effect, you know, in recent years has actually gotten smaller. The home court advantage has gotten smaller, but it's still about 2.33 points per game is the home court advantage. So that's league average. I mean, I could probably drill down and get different teams' advantages, but that's good enough for government work, as they say. And so by playing at home so far this year, they've gained about a little more than three-tenths of a point per game, which doesn't sound like a lot, but consider that their scoring margin, they've outscored their opponent by two-tenths of a point per game so far. So, again, it all adds up to them being so-so. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they've really performed about uh, the way you'd expect. I mean, Dean Oliver in Basketball on Paper had this interesting little sort of side note about well, not side note, I guess it was kind of like a whole chapter, but it was about win streaks and does three in a row mean you're good and that kind of thing. And he's got a, a handy table in there. You know, the Wizards' longest winning streak this year is three games. Their longest losing streak is three games, which is, again, exactly what you expect would expect for a completely average team. You know, three in a row during the course of an 82-game season is just inevitable. I think, you know, the rest of the way, they'll probably get a four- or a five-game winning streak, but they'll also have a similar-sized losing streak. By the way, shout-out to Basketball on Paper. If you are listening to this podcast and are interested in advanced NBA stats and then learning more about it, just as a way to really understand more about what's going on on the court and what contributes to teams winning and losing games beyond platitudes that you hear former players and, and and coaches spout. I can't recommend Basketball on Paper enough by Dean Oliver. It's just a good place to start to really understand what contributes to winning and losing basketball Yeah, games. I agree completely. So the Wizards are mediocre. <laughs> Still mediocre. On that cheery note, you wrote a piece for Bullets Forever a few days ago about how the Wizards' offseason moves not only hurt them this year and it's very clear that their offseason moves have not paid off really much at all to date but those moves have also handicapped them well into the future tell us about the piece tell us about what you learned when researching it well it's funny because that grew out of one of our conversations where i was looking at the future cap and it's just struck me all of a sudden that they have a ton of money committed for next year and to the point where if they sign auto to a max contract or a large contract, which he seems to be worth, they're going to be bumping right up against the luxury tag, luxury cap, not just being over the salary cap. And so as I took a look, you know, they're pretty well boxed in for the next several years, especially if they resign Otto Porter, because they've given so much money to Mahinmi, to Nicholson, and to Jason Smith. Those are the the big three, and they're getting virtually nothing from them. I mean, they've gotten about a quarter of a win from Jason Smith so far this year, and they've gotten nothing from Nicholson or Mahinmi. Just one point of explanation, the luxury tax is effectively a hard salary cap. So 
we talk about the salary cap. You can exceed the salary cap for various reasons. There is a luxury tax where if you exceed it, you have to pay a, a, an additional tax right. basically then, on that revenue, te, uh, on that salary. Ted Leonsis, the Wizards have never paid it. They're one of a handful of teams that have never paid the luxury tax. And by the way, I don't think that that is in and of itself a bad thing. I don't think that makes Ted Leonsis cheap or anything like that. But Ted Leonsis has made it pretty clear that he has no intention of paying the luxury tax. And and I think use the word draconian to describe the penalties it inhibits teams abilities to make trades and sign for other uh, sign other players so for all intents and purposes we can view that luxury tax as as a hard cap and so what you're saying is once the wizards retain Otto porter they are going to already be at the line of uh, at, they'll be, at they'll be actually a little bit above it, probably. And not be yeah, able to... They'll probably exceed it by a little bit. And so that means they'll have to pay someone with cash or maybe with draft pick considerations or maybe with a prospect to take some salary off their hands in order right. to get below that's the right. tax line. That's right, and that's before that right? they sign their draft picks, if they if they keep their draft picks, or before they go out and sign a free agent, or and would obviously restrict them from adding salary in a trade. Now, I will say, I mean, like you, you talked about Ted Leonsis and the luxury tax. If Leonsis is willing to pay the luxury tax, this is, there's no problem. You know, if he's willing to pay, then, you know, you can get you can bring in guys. I wouldn't even say there's no problem because, look, it, it's it's not my money. It's not your money. It, it's not anyone who's listening. To, well, what to I'm what money, I'm saying, though, is if he's probably. willing to pay. But, yeah, Ted, if you're if listening, you, hello. If he's willing to pay, you know, the money, then you could trade for you know, you could trade draft picks and salary filler for, you know, some, say, Blake Griffin or Paul Millsap or something like that, and then sign him and then re-sign Otto and then sign a bunch of minimum salary guys to fill out their roster, and you'd have a pretty good team for a few years. But I don't think he's right. going to do that, and I also don't think necessarily that he should. I do think that the luxury tax is a completely reasonable thing to avoid. Yeah, the only point that I was going to make is that once you exceed that tax, it really does hurt your ability to to make other moves obviously if you're cleveland and have uh, lebron james running the team and you have a championship window you pay the tax and uh and and that's it but there are very few teams in that situation so back to sort of your your piece it's pretty surprising that the wizards went into last season with all this cap space and a year later are going to find themselves in a position to not add any more to what they bought last summer, especially considering that in the best case, what they bought last summer right. was a bunch of backups. Yeah, it's it was a really, really bad offseason. I mean, this offseason last year rivals the 2011 draft for just setting your team back, setting your franchise back. Because, at I mean, best case with Mahinmi Smith, and Nicholson, they got backups. That's absolute best case. Well, I, so I want to go yeah. guy by guy because to, to, to dig into this a little bit, to figure out how we got here, and then perhaps at the end of the discussion to figure out mm-hmm. if, if there's a way out. Let's yeah. talk about Mahinmi for a second. We, we talked about him on our, on our last, yeah. on our initial pod, and the... the real concern with Mahinmi is that he's just not very good, that, that he had a career year last year, well, that is one of real. Con- that's one real concern with Mahinmi. The other one is that he's got chronic health issues and he's not going right. to be able to get on the court at all. L- let's let's 
put on our hopeful hats for a second and say, you know what? The Mahinmi that played last year, that's the real Mahinmi, and mm-hmm. he's just got to get healthy, and that's mm-hmm. who he's going to be. Even if that's the guy the Wizards are getting, why do you sign him to a four-year deal? Yeah, that's the thing, and especially with the kind of money that they gave him. The one thing that they did do well with this is that they got him on a descending deal. It goes up next year, and then it goes down the last two years of the deal. So it makes it slightly more affordable each year, but it's not that much. You know, it's we're talking about at least seven hundred thousand, seven hundred fifty thousand going down each year. It's just it's one of those things where it's like I, why you. you would go four years for a thirty-year-old who's been a career backup coming off a career season in a contract year. I don't know. That's like a so wizards move to me. Well, I'll tell you why it's distressing to me, and we'll compare it to Jeff Green yeah. because we talked about this previ- previously this week, but. It, it smacks of a panic move to me, and I'll tell you why. We obviously know that they wanted Durant. They were shut down before that ever started. We know they got pretty far down the road with Horford. They didn't get that done. It has been reported that at one point, Ryan Anderson thought he was going to be a wizard. So they, there were clearly conversations there. And it was also reported that the Wizards thought they had Luol Deng. And and the offer, it sounds like, was in the three-year, $51 million range, so about mm. 17 a year, maybe between somewhere between 15 and 17 a year, three-year deal, mm-hmm. which is what was reported. That's, right. that's all we're going off of. And then the Lakers came in with the extra year and the extra money, and that went away. Obviously, stuff it, in free agency, things are happening, happening mm-hmm. extremely quickly. You don't know who you're going to get. But, but Mahinmi was at best their fifth choice. And it seems like they lost out on their top, at least their top four choices. And they just panicked and they said, well, we got to right. sign somebody. Somebody who will take the money. And because, you know, it's a saying in a lot of front offices around the league that is that cap space doesn't win you any games. The thinking could have been in the Wizards front office, look, we've got to get, a bu- we've got to get bodies on the roster. And so if we have to spend some money to do that, we're going to do that. And what you end up doing is making some not very good moves because of, like you said, the, the emotional desperation of we've got to get somebody. The other part of this is that when you make these kinds of moves and you get somebody, you don't have to go through this again. You know, they don't have to go through this again next summer or this coming summer in 2017 if they had signed, say, three or four guys to one-year deals and then so that they could go through this again. You know, then you you strike out again a second time, and what does that say about how you how good you are at making deals, how good you are at evaluating whether you can get guys or not? You know that kind of thing. So these were ended up in a sense, if you're the GM, being very safe moves because you don't have to go through this experience again. I am guessing that among our dozen or so listeners, that there are some folks who have played some form of fantasy sports in the past football basketball baseball and and in all those situations maybe you have a draft maybe you have an auction but there is an event where there's a lot of stuff going on quickly and i and i think everyone can relate to that moment when things are happening quickly and and you panic and you pick a guy and you instantly panic again because you realize you screwed up and that is what this feels like now i would contrast this with the Jeff Green signing in Orlando, who, when that signing got announced, everyone said, what on earth is Orlando doing 
giving Jeff Green $15 million. The second part is, what's Orlando doing with Jeff Green? Because they had nine other uh, front court guys, and mm-hmm. it just made no sense. But Jeff Green isn't a good player, and it's not a very good signing, but it's right. done after a year. And I, I would have so much less problem with... With Mahinmi, or even a guy who's not as good with Mahinmi, if they hadn't committed to him for so long, particularly because of his age, you know, if they had ended up with Biombo, who's seven years younger than Mahinmi or something like that, and given him four years in order to do it, I don't love the move, but okay, I I I get it. But again, it just it smacks of panic to me, and that's very disheartening as a fan. If you think about that, the people that are steering the ship are so uncomfortable under these circumstances that they are prone to such yeah, big mistakes. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to make an expensive mistake, at least make it a short one. Talk to me about Andrew Nicholson. When this signing was announced, there was there were some voices that said, hey, Andrew Nicholson's not very good, but he never really got a shot. Or, or, or not even wasn't very good, isn't very good, but he's never produced much, but he hasn't really gotten much of a shot in Orlando. Yeah, that should have said something, though. I and, mean, you, you get a guy, you know, coaches, generally speaking, if a guy can really play, they get him on the floor. They, they try to find a way. And, you know, Nicholson had sort of declining uh, minutes during his you know during his career there in Orlando certainly didn't didn't go up I guess declining isn't quite fair on a per game basis but they basically stayed flat and so did his performance for the most part he's very below average player every year of his career and when you're below average and you can't really get on the floor for a team that stinks those are red flags the Wizards gave him four years aside from that (laughs) Mrs. Lincoln how was the play I'll tell you what bugs me the most about the Nicholson signing. Because, again, if I squint, I can be talked into he's mm-hmm. relatively young. If you, you know, by having him for four years, you 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 will take advantage of his growth, etc. The thing that bugs me about Nicholson is he is a terrible fit for Scott Brooks and the way Scott Brooks clearly wants to play. Scott Brooks, he, he wants athleticism on the floor. He wants to pressure on D. Andrew Nichols, and, and not to mention the fact that just sort of the overall direction of NBA basketball, pace and space to an extreme, Andrew Nicholson can't stay on the floor because he right. can't defend anyone. Where it seems that he's been least ineffective <laughs> is playing as a backup or third string center because he's least in a position where he's got to defend someone on an island in in, in yeah. space out on the perimeter he can use his yeah. strength down on the he on the reminds box. me physically of andre blotch and i really don't mean that as a in, in a good way he's just so slow and plodding out there that he doesn't really quite seem like an nba athlete and he's not so uber skilled he's got decent skills but he's not so uber-skilled and so high basketball IQ that he can make up for it. You know, there are guys out there who aren't necessarily overwhelming athletes in NBA terms, but they can still be effective players because they're really smart and they're really skilled. That's not him. He's He's got decent skills. He doesn't think the game badly, 
but he doesn't have the physical capabilities to make up for any deficiencies there, and he doesn't. He's not overwhelmingly high IQ to make up for the physical deficiencies. He's also got that weird Greg Oden thing where he looks yeah. like he's sixty. This is the kind of guy that it would have been much better to give him a one-year deal. Or, I mean, I really think that if they had just waited, they probably could have had him at the league minimum. It just seems preposterous to me that a guy like him would get. What did he get? Twenty-eight million over four years. That's just twenty-six. That just seems like a ton of money. Speaking of guys that you, speaking we're going to talk about Jason Smith now, aren't we? Been available at the league minimum. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we are. Talk to me about Jason Smith. Tell me about his career, where his production sort of rates, ranks. What what role he should have on a on a decent or good? I don't NBA think he team. has a role on a decent or good NBA team, except maybe like you know if you've got your fifteen man roster. And he's like your 14th guy, you know, 15th guy. You know, you get a few bunch of guys get injured and you use him for three or four games. That's the kind of player that he is, really. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a guy who he's 30 now and he's basically rated about replacement level, a little bit a little bit better than replacement level. So, I mean, he's not like the worst guy around, but he's also not somebody that you would, for example, think would be a valued reserve at any point in his career for a good team. And incidentally... Nicholson, Mahinmi, and Smith, all three of them rank right in a really tight grouping of career PPA, all right around 55. I mean, it's like 55. What 50, is PPA? Well, PPA is my stat. You know, it's my um, overall ranking or uh, rating stat, and it's based on how players contribute to wins and losses. In PPA, and it includes things like it's, first of all, it's pace adjusted. It accounts for defense. It has a degree of difficulty factor so that guys who play, you know, only a few minutes against the bench, but say put up big numbers, those are kind of discounted a little bit because we know that the competition isn't necessarily as fierce when you're playing garbage minutes against a bench, you know, versus a guy like a short, a, a low minute starter. Like if you get a guy who starts and plays 26 minutes, Typically, he's going up against starters. That's tougher competition. All of that sort of gets rolled together. And so in PPA, I set 100 as the league average. Higher is better. Replacement level comes in at 45. That's about the score of the worst 11th man in the league. 30th ranked 11th man in the league, if that makes any sense. That makes sense. So 45 is basically the is the replacement level. And all three of those guys rated just a little bit better than replacement level. They all rated mid-50s, like 55, 57, 59, somewhere in there for their careers. So we're talking about guys who really are career bench warmers, end of the bench kind of guys. And the Wizards spent, you know, what, a hundred plus million dollars over the next four years on them. So Jason Smith seems like an awesome guy. He's funny. Uh, I root for that bald spot. Yeah, man. Go bald spot. That's right. I I like him and he's had some decent games of late and I... (laughs) I hope he continues to play well. Uh, obviously, on he's a he's a spot minutes guy on a, on a good team. Maybe a fifth big, maybe even a a guy who's not active every night. I think he's a spot minutes guy on a bad team. He's a rotation big on a mediocre team, as it turns out. Well, at the, uh, mo- reality, at the moment he uh, is, but I really think they could yes. probably pick up somebody off the street and could fill that role. They could probably give Ochefu those minutes and do just as well. I will tell you the thing about the Jason Smith signing that drives me insane. Because the the truth of the matter is, is while, yes, they could have gotten him for the minimum, you know, the impact of, of an extra couple million bucks 
on a hundred million dollar cap or whatever the cap is at now. It, 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 it's a it's a percent or two. It's not that huge of a deal. It's the kind of thing that can be worked around. Obviously, you want your resources all to be allocated efficiently, but that you gave Jason Smith a little bit too much money on a per year basis is not the biggest deal in the world, even though it's still a mistake. I'll tell you what drives me crazy about the Jason Smith signing. Mm-hmm. I believe Jason Smith is the only guy who signed this summer, other than uh, other than rookies, who signed for $5 million a year or less and got more than two years. Mm. And for some reason, the Wizards felt compelled. Maybe Smith's agent asked and the Wizards cave. They com- felt compelled to give him a player option on the third year. Yeah. I cannot, for the life of me, imagine why it's important enough to sign a guy like Jason Smith that you're giving him a third-year player option. Yeah, yeah. When I saw because the- that's what the market's saying, right? That's what the market's saying is that guys who are getting this little money in in summers where where Dang and Mahinmi and all these guys are, are 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 getting massive amounts of of cash. If you're getting five million dollars a year in the biggest free agent bonanza of all time, fundamentally you're not that valuable. So why are you giving that guy a third year, yeah. a, a player option in the third year? It makes no yeah, sense. Yeah, and I'm, I just struggle to see because it's one of those things where it's like you, you give him the player option and it's like, what's the reaction inside the Wizards front office? Do they say, yes, we got our guy for Jason Smith? It just doesn't add up. And by the way, the difference, I mean, the difference on you're talking about Jason Smith giving him, you know, say more than the league minimum when you didn't have to. It's the difference between perhaps signing a mid-level exception guy next year. Yeah, we've dissected and gone through the the gory details on on three bad signings. Mm -hmm. The impact of this is the Wizards are mediocre and they have a little bit of upside and sort of the collective improvement of the young guys on their roster. Mm -hmm. But if I'm hearing you right, and I think we both understand this, they don't have any way to add to this team without subtracting. Exactly. They, they have to get rid of some salary if they're going to add. However they get rid of the salary, they have to do it, or they can't add. Okay. How much salary would the Wizards have to get rid of in order to be in a position to either absorb a significant salary in a trade if they were to you know give up their first-round pick again— <laughs> Or to sign someone in free agency. Well, I mean, if you're talking about a max salary type level guy, they would probably have maybe not even a max guy, but but someone who's going to move the needle in terms of adding a few wins to the team, a good player, someone to take some minutes away from Markeith Morris, so, someone who's going to just make the team better. Yeah. Well, they would probably have to offload somewhere in the neighborhood of. Because they're going to be probably about 1.4 million over the luxury tax, so you'd probably be looking at 11 to 12 million that they would want to get rid of, so that they could, you know, sign somebody. And then once you add in draft picks, yeah, once you add in the draft picks, you're probably looking at another, say, three million. So you're looking at probably 15 million that they would want to offload. So, so Ed, I just want to understand this correctly. So if let let's say they don't. They have no interest or ability in creating cap space, but what they want to do is be able to use the mid-level exception this summer to sign someone. They want to use it all on one one guy. 
So what's the mid-level going to be this summer? Seven million-ish? Um, you know, I'd have to look that up. Um, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. Okay. Well, I feel like it, it used to be in the five million range before the cap spike. So I got to think it's in the seven or eight million dollar range. Somewhere, let's just say it's between five and ten million. They just need they need to create that space under the luxury tax. Right. But also have p- potentially have room for a draft pick. So they have to move however much that is, plus plus a few million bucks in order to sign. Right. Someone. They would need to move that much salary plus 1.4 million to stay under the the luxury tax. Now they could negotiate, you know, a little bit of extra money. Say they can get Otto Porter to sign for 20 million instead of a full max, and that would be that would save them 5.5 million in the first year. So they there's some wiggle room. So say they get Otto for 20 million in that first year. At that point, they would probably only have to unload another three or four million and stay, you know, to be able to pay the mid-level except and stay under the luxury tax. So, for example, had they not signed Jason Smith, they wouldn't have that problem. Okay, you you know some folks in front offices around the NBA. Let's say you just come clean with yourself and you you're running the Wizards, and you come clean with yourself and you say, you know what, we we just screwed up. We we bought some lemons. We got to get out of this in order to go forward what do you do at this point what do you do with Mahinmi, nicholson and smith are you giving people draft picks to 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 send them into their cap space are you considering a year into any of these deals using the stretch provision and you can but 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 how do you get out of this mess that those are really the two options the, the challenge with trading for example Mahinmi or Nicholson using draft picks to, you know, basically to trade them into cap spaces that even bad teams aren't going to want to tie up $16 million and $6.4, $6.8 million, $6.9 million for three more years in exchange for some draft picks, you know, because... Just to get a draft pick, right? I mean, that's that's kind of an expensive way to get a draft pick. And they're they're sort of tying tying up roster spots, they're tying up salary space that they could be using to sign somebody else to you know bring in free agents. I mean Philly would love to make a free agent splash for example. And so why would they take Mahinmi plus they're jammed with centers already. So why would they be interested in Mahinmi and or Nicholson even if they're getting a first round draft pick unprotected? Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but Hinky's not there anymore. Let's talk about the stretch provision yeah. for a second. So the stretch provision as I understand it allows you to cut a guy and stretch or spread his remaining salary over double the number of years left on his salary That's plus right. one. So if they were to so if they were to move on from either Mahinmi or Nicholson after this season, they would be able to spread their cap hit over the next seven seasons. Right. Now the pro being, they would instantly create cap space by uh, by doing that. The con would be for four seasons after their salaries would would normally be over, you would still be paying them st- still be paying them w- when they're long right. gone. Teams have done it. The, the Wizards did with Martel mm-hmm. Webster. It amounted to something like a million bucks or, or, or less on their cap. Eight hundred thirty-three thousand dollars. <laughs> thank you. Did you have that handy, or did you calculate that? Uh, no, in real I just time? Uh, did the math in my head very quickly because you know I can't. You are so no, impressive. I, I've got the spreadsheet open. 
Okay. So it's a lot of pain to stretch a big salary. So after this season, what does Mahinmi have? Well, so I just, yeah, I just did the math on these. So Mahinmi would be $48.1 million roughly, and Nicholson would be $19.9 million. For Mahinmi, you'd be paying him $6.9 million almost over the next seven years. $6.9 million per year over the next seven years to get him to go away nice. by stretching. And uh, for Nicholson, it would be $2.8 million. So in Mahinmi's case, the, so for those first three years or the last three years on his deal, you're saving, call it $9 million bucks a year on your cap. You're creating $9 million bucks in cap space. But in order to do that, in years four through seven, you are spending $6.9 million on a guy who is long gone. Exactly. Well, given your assessment of the kind of impact that these guys can have on the floor, I think that that's something that you at least have to think about. Yeah. I mean, if I was the general manager, I would be looking at those things. If I, like if Leonsis fires Ernie Grunfeld, I'm not even saying me, but he just hires somebody else. I think that would be something that they would be strongly looking at because if you stretch those two guys, you've created about $13 million in cap space that you can spend this summer, or $13 million in salary space that you can spend this summer. And I think that that would be pretty attractive, That you thinking that you could go out and with $13 million get better players than what you would get by spending $23 million on Mahinmi and Nicholson next year. Just to be clear, I think you and I agree that there is 0% chance that Ernie Grunfeld is going to walk into Ted's office and say, hey, you know those guys that I told you to pay a gajillion dollars to last summer? Just kidding. I actually think you should pay them a gajillion-ish dollars to yeah. not play on our team. I, I think we, we also... Agree. I mean, Ernie Grunfeld has forfeited the right to clean up any more of his mistakes. Well, this has been I think that's length. the case that you and I would think that. I'm not sure that Leonsis would think that. I think that Leonsis could be talked into it being just bad luck that Nicholson came in out of shape or something and Mahinmi banged knees and was never able to walk again like a typical Wizards free agent signing. The other thing with Mahinmi that, that I don't get that sort of drives me nuts is that how do you— how do you go from banging knees to having conditions in both knees that necessitate the platelet-rich whatever therapy? It would seem to be that there was pre- there were previously underlying issues, and if you knew about so there are a few scenarios. One, if you knew about the underlying issues, and this is what happens, that strikes me as right. fireable in and yeah. of itself, right? You knew about this risk. This was our number one signing. He hasn't been able to get on the court. Yeah. Sorry. Goodbye. If you if if this information was reasonably available and you didn't ask and you didn't know about it, sure. That's just as bad. The third scenario is a little gray, whereby I don't know. Maybe maybe you didn't know because and then this is obviously a hundred percent speculation, but maybe Mahinmi and his agent weren't forthcoming with it. If that's the case, then it's then it's a little tougher, and you know I, I don't know how NBA front offices handle that stuff. Yeah, I don't think it's on stuff. the player to share that information. I believe that medical records would get shared between teams in a situation like that, although it could be different with free agency. That'd be something to check into. And the other thing, too, that might be interesting for a future episode would be to find one of the in- injury experts out there and get them to talk about it. I think we could just get any random Wizards fan, any random that's, Wizards uh, fans, an injury expert. So all of that said, 
the offseason wasn't all awful. I want to talk a little bit about Sadoransky, and I want to talk a little bit about Sheldon McClellan. Now, Sadoransky obviously has not been a productive player yet. Yet. I think, although he did just have his best game, he's back in the rotation, playing backup point guard. Brooks has taken him off the wing. There is reason to believe from my non, non-technical standpoint, based on an interview I did two summers ago with Fran Fraschilla and just my belief and understanding of the basketball world, there's reason to believe that Sadoransky should be a decent rotation player on a decent team. What do you see in him based on your analysis? Well, I, th- I think that's possible. I mean, I see skills. He's certainly got an NBA body, you know, and NBA athleticism. I just don't know whether he's going to gonna get there. Maybe he will. He, I think that he can certainly if he's willing to work and if he's willing to learn. But one of the things that are really that really strikes me about Sadoransky is to keep in mind that this guy's 25 years old. He's played overseas in some of the more competitive leagues there are, and he's played quite well. He's a very good international player, and he comes to the NBA and he's overwhelmed. The NBA is a really tough league to break into. It's a really tough league to figure out and to do well in, and. He could improve quite a bit and still not be a very good NBA player. But he's not signed for a lot, and I think that there's some real potential there. You know, the game needs to slow down a bit for him, and I th- he just needs. I think he needs some playing time and some experience, and we'll see. I, I'm not very down on him. I think he's doing about what you'd expect a rookie to do. You know, he's below replacement level or right around replacement level, but that's fine. You know, he's, like I said, he's a rookie. You expect rookies to not be all that good at first. And I think there was some hope with him that he might come in and do better, considering that he was older and that he played professionally. But, you know, the NBA is a hard league. It's the toughest league there is, certainly in basketball. I think probably any sport, it's the most competitive, toughest league to play in. So I may be misremembering to uh, quote Andy Pettit, but... I, I thought that you had at one point done some analysis of the Euro League or the Spanish ACB where he was, and basically based on his production there, run it through your draft analyzer or whatever it was that made you believe that, no, this guy's not going to be a great player, but, but based on how he produced at his age in that league and looking at a, a large sample of similar-ish guys, that there was reason to believe that he was going to be decent. It, was that indeed not you? Was that did I he read that? Might have elsewhere? read it elsewhere. I took his numbers and I did plug them into my draft analyzer, uh, ye old draft analyzer. Yoda, ye old yes, draft Yoda. analyzer. He came out as I recall as sort of like a kind of a mid-level prospect. You know, the kind of guy you might draft, say for example, later second round, that kind of thing, but not somebody to get all excited about. That said, I really haven't looked at international ball in any kind of specific way, and the way they accumulate stats there is a little different. You know, they, they don't award assists quite as liberally, for example. All right. Well, he was great against Portland. Brooks is playing him just at backup point guard. I am extremely hopeful, and I think there's reason to believe that he's going through an adjustment period that guys go through. But I think there's reason to believe that he can yeah. be decent. Now, and and decent is something. It's it, it's it's something that they haven't had because, as we all believed over the summer, 
Trey Burke was never a wise choice as a as a backup point guard, and Scott Brooks has decided that, and Scott Brooks is not even playing him at point guard anymore. He seems to be playing Burke off the ball because he destroys the offense when he plays point guard in sort of Eric Maynard-like fashion, and, and he's playing Sadoransky at the backup point, which brings me to Sheldon mm-hmm. McClellan. Just from a 30,000-feet view of McClellan's available advanced stats, not Kevin Broom PPA, <laughs> but it seems like in a very small sample, McClellan's having a better season than any of than any season Burke has ever yes. had, and he's he's basically the same age as Burke. He's he's a month mm-hmm. month younger, so I, it's not like oh he's he's nineteen and he needs to learn how to be a grown up and uh, and and we should shelter him. So what did Yoda, ye old draft <laughs> analyzer, say about Sheldon McClellan? Was this guy worthy of being drafted? And and based on how he has performed so far. Is there reason to believe that he can be a passable or decent backup wing? I want to say, first of all, that small sample size is really in effect with McClellan. You know, talking about 200-some minutes so far this season, I would pump the brakes on getting too excited about him. Just pulled him up in Yoda, and I had him with a very solid do-not-draft grade coming out of coming out of college his senior year. So I would have said at that point, don't draft him at all. Like, not even second round, don't draft him. And I wouldn't have had him on my list of guys to go after as a, as an undrafted free agent. Shout out to Thomas Walkup, who yeah. is uh, I know I, he's he's your boy, and he's I believe playing with the Bulls D League team. Yeah, Thomas Walkup, by the way, was this this guy who was just ludicrously successful for I don't even remember what school. Yeah, Stephen F. Austin, I think it was. It just lo- I think it's Stephen, Stephen a. Austin. a. Austin. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, but the guy jumped off the, the, the page for his statistical production. And then when he went through the, you know, the combine and stuff, he actually tested out pretty decently at, in terms of his agility and his strength. Very strong guy. But um, he's a little on the small side, you know, a little short-armed, that kind of thing. But crazy competitive. And he's the kind of guy that, you know, if I had a late second-round pick, I would want to pick and I would want to bring him around and – just see if he can do something. He he didn't jump off quite the way that, say, for example, Jay Crowder did. Go back a few years, you know, Crowder. The first year I did this, did the attempted to do statistical analysis of a the draft. Jay Crowder jumped up so high that I actually thought I was must have been doing something wrong, until I started researching him and found out that no, the guy's really freaking good. And I thought he'd be a good pro, and I tried to get the Wizards to draft him, and they didn't want to. We're off topic now from Sheldon McClellan. I'm sorry. But it was a actually a, a good – I was going to bring up Crowder too just because I wanted to provide some context because obviously you and I have been talking for years and someone's listening to a podcast about someone uh, – talk about his his draft evaluation tool that he developed. And yes, not only were you screaming and yelling about Jay Crowder to the point that you were talking to people in the Wizards front office about yeah. please draft him – but after he was drafted, Mark Cuban said, and I'm sure we can find it, that some of the models that they used rated Crowder as the second best player in the draft. Now, the sad epilogue to that for Dallas is that they gave him away in the terrible Rondo deal, but Jay Crowder, those are the diamonds in the rough that you need to find in order to win in a, in a capped system. Yeah. So 
back to McClellan. Look, as impressed as I've been with Yoda over the years, you would be the first person to admit that it's not fail-safe, foolproof. Any system, any evaluation method is gonna is gonna miss on things. So maybe Sheldon McClellan, for whatever reason, wasn't a good college player, and maybe he's gonna be a decent NBA player. Is there any reason to believe that he shouldn't be playing Trey Burke's minutes? No, I don't. I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be playing Trey Burke's minutes. And to your point about McClellan, is while he may not have been a good college player at least in terms of projecting him to the NBA, the reality with all of these guys is, you know, these young guys, is that lots of guys have potential to to get in. Every player who gets drafted is an unfinished product. Every guy is unfinished. Every guy needs to do work. Every guy needs to work on his body, his game, his skills, his mental approach, his knowledge, all of that stuff. And so if McClellan put in the work and he worked consistently and all that kind of stuff and smart there's no reason he couldn't work himself into an NBA team that's lots of guys have done that you know because there may be guys who are more talented who did better in college who don't work as hard or don't work as smart and McClellan could be a guy who comes in and works like crazy really improves his game his shooting all those sorts of things and maybe he can carve out a a role for himself in the league the one thing he has going against him, of course, is competing for minutes with Trey Burke is that Trey Burke was a first-round pick. And that may sound absurd, but David Barry, you know, the Wages of Wins guy, has done this research and found that draft position is a determining factor in playing time decisions for years into players' careers, far past the point where productivity differences should be what makes the difference. So a guy who gets picked in the first round, especially like a lottery pick, He'll get more playing time than someone who was picked in the second round, even if the second rounder is better. And we're talking seven, eight, nine years into their careers. Wow. Well, and and to your point, and this is just another total facepalm moment, Burke's draft status, lottery status, I'm 99% sure was referenced in Ernie Grunfeld's press release about yes. his signing. So that's tough. And, and that tells you a little bit about how the— front office is making decisions and looking at guys they're looking at where someone was picked as opposed to how good they are the the, the other thing the other thing with with Burke is he's a, he's a free agent after this season given the cap situation that we've talked about they're not bringing him back M- McClellan is cheap and young you might as well try to develop him and see if you've got something there and use Burke and Marcus Thornton in the in case of emergency situation and and Brooks seems to have moved Thornton appropriately out of the rotation yes. and and the hope is is that he does that with Burke as well. That would be good. I think that would be a smart thing to do for both guys. I mean, you think about it, Trey Burke has played in what 36 games so far this season. Yeah, that's too many. So look, this podcast is not going to be all gloom and doom. This is stuff that we had to go through to sort of frame how we look at the Wizards big picture but we're going to dig into some other cool stuff we're going to talk to some league insiders and provide whatever insight we can with that we're going to wrap up today's episode if you like what you're hearing please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or however you listen to podcasts Kevin is on Twitter at broom underscore Kevin you can find his Wizards related work on Bullets Forever 
You can also check out kevinbroom.com for Kevin's other writing, including his upcoming mystery novel. I'm on Twitter at underscore Ben Becker. And until next time, this is Becker and Broom on Bullets Forever. Bullets Forever.